that creates uh, in many people uh, a great sense of consternation. But as I begin, I want you to remember that the Sabbath day and the Sabbath day observances and the things in which the Lord was speaking about, the Sabbath was never meant to be bondage. It was never meant to be slavery. It was never meant to be a burden. And sadly, a lot of the teaching today that is going astray is making it a burden. And of course, as we study the scriptures and we remember the Pharisees and uh, those that were here with us the number of months ago when we were going through Matthew, uh, we had began to start to see the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. Up, up to chapter 12, there really has not been a serious conflict, but the Sabbath day really is what ignited the fire. Uh, the, the Sabbath day created in this, this conflict between Jesus and between the Pharisees. Now, of course, a bit of a background on the Pharisees. We know that the Pharisees were very well known for adding tradition to the teaching of Scripture. Uh, they took that which was uh, tradition, man-made, and they added it to the teaching and said, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, that's why it's very telling when Jesus uses those terms, but I say unto you what he was acknowledging, and he's saying, you say one thing, but here's what I say. And I would much rather hear what Jesus has to say than what the Pharisees have to say. Uh, if we got into a debate about the Sabbath day, I would much rather hear what Jesus has to say than what you have to say, and you should say the same to me. I don't want to know what you think, preacher. I want to know what Jesus says about this. So that is the subject. That is the approach in which we're taking. So, of course, the Pharisees added their traditions to the teachings of Scripture, and they made this a day of control. And it really forms the foundation of what we know as the pharisaical legalism. Now, again, I'm not going to define legalism in the terms in which we think about it today, but they used it as a form of legalism. It was used as a means of holding people to their traditions above what the Word of God said. Now, of course, you study church history. Again, I'm not going to go deeply into this today. Uh, you'll find varied, strong opinions. Uh, you will find very strong opinions between men who are followers of the doctrines of grace. They are Reformed theology to the core, and there will be a difference between what they think the Sabbath is, what the Sabbath entails, when it, how this is to function. You're going to find it. It's going to be very, very divisive. It can be divisive. But I want you to know what Jesus was separating here was the difference between what the Bible said and what the Pharisees said. And if, you, if, if we don't keep this in mind, you're going to miss this. He is drawing the line between what the Pharisees said it was and what he says it is. And therein is where the journey is going to take us. So these strong opinions have left some to even say, and I would say this even within some of our Reformed Baptist circles, that we will have no fellowship with you because you feel this way about the Sabbath day. We're going to break fellowship with you. We're going to remove ourselves from you because you have a different opinion on this. So this is, a, this is one of those lightning rod issues. And uh, quite frankly, uh, this is one of those issues that becomes uh, very, very difficult when you uh, reach these points. So with no major conflict, right? With no major conflict, Jesus now, we see an escalation. We see an escalation. Matthew's been writing and he has made mention all the way back in Matthew 5, verse 20, he had told the people that their righteousness 
had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, but it was not a deep conflict. Not the type of conflict that we're seeing what's happening here. Of course, in that conflict, he mentioned to them that, of course, he was teaching them that they had to, uh, their, their teaching would say, you have to have something greater. And he was telling them there is something greater. There, there's the righteousness of, of Christ himself. In Matthew 9, he gave them examples how the scribes and the Pharisees were complaining among themselves. And their biggest complaint was they didn't like what Jesus was saying. You've got to remember that the Pharisees from the get-go did not like anything that Jesus said. Uh, you don't find them sitting down having fellowship one with another saying, look, I think we're going to have a beautiful friendship. And I'm not trying to be irreverent here. But there was never like this was a friendship and then they, bar- they broke. This was always a conflict, a division between them. Because they had, the Pharisees had their man-made, this is what righteousness looks like. And then Jesus had, here's what righteousness is. Again, that's why the danger of thinking that you can earn any sort of merit or favor with God is ludicrous. The fact that you think that you could do a single good work or do a good work every day and that would somehow atone for all of your sins and make you righteous before God is just the the, the pinnacle of foolishness. There's no way we could do that. But yet, as was mentioned... The Pharisees did ask Jesus a, what they thought was a very cutting question when he asked, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? But now Matthew does report this major conflict. Now the conflict centers around what seems to be a very simple event. Verse 1 tells us, at this time, Jesus, walking as he often did, on the Sabbath day, with his disciples, he's walking, Bible clearly says, through the corn. And this is not a Mount of Transfiguration moment, right? This is not one of those events we think about and think, boy, this is one of those grand things when Jesus is... Th- this, now, this, this is a big teaching coming here, right? They're just walking through the corn. And as they're walking through the corn, the disciples were hungry. See how direct we're being with scriptures here? So we know a couple of facts. Jesus and the disciples are there. They're hungry. It's a Sabbath day. They're walking through the corn and they're hungry. And it tells us they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. And therein lies the Pharisees' dispute, the conflict. They began to eat, they began to pluck. They began to pull from that field. Now, one might come to a rational conclusion and say, well, the Pharisees were mad because this is stealing or this is trespassing. That's not what the Pharisees are even the least bit concerned about. The only thing they're concerned about is it's the Sabbath day. That's the entire emphasis. It's not about the corn. I've heard some some foolish messages over the years ignored the sabbath day and just preached some rally cry about the corn i I don't get it but that's for another day but we see what the context is expositionally the emphasis is on the sabbath day how do we know that because that's when the the disciples begin to even acknowledge and mention what is actually going on here so when our lord's disciples begin to pluck the corn 
pick the corn. May, it's going to vary as far as what, what translation you have. As they walk through these fields, the Pharisees are enraged. They're angry. And instead of the Lord responding in anger, he responds back by telling them what really is happening here. And what Jesus' main emphasis is in this entire passage is the purpose and the intent of the Sabbath day. That's the, that's, that is the context. Even the healing we read about and we read about in our scripture reading doesn't stand alone if you take the context out because what he does is he does a healing on the Sabbath day in order to prove yet again another point. Right? And we're going to see that. So there's instruction regarding the Sabbath. There's, re- there's instruction regarding the uselessness of this legalism that the Pharisees are trying to add. And I would even say the Pharisees have what we could only refer to as a graceless religion. Without grace, you have nothing but religion. Religion has never saved. Religion will never save. We'll never say, but in these 14 verses we see, our Lord shows himself and he even announces there in our verse, we saw verse eight, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. So this is not, he's saying this is not something that is apart from me. He's not saying that there's the Sabbath day and then there's me. Or there's the Sabbath day and then there's my father. Or there's the Sabbath day and then there's the spirit. He said, no, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath day. He is claiming that he has as much authority and has as much right to say, this is what the Sabbath day is all about. Again, expositional teaching that is faithful to the word is not going to ignore the context. And it's not going to ignore this is the subject, the Sabbath day. So what does Jesus do in these first three verses that Christ immediately reproves the accusation? Christ immediately reproves the accusation. Now, how does he reprove it? Well, notice it says in verse 2, when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Now our reasonable minds say, well, that could mean anything. What was the unlawful thing? Th- stealing? Trespassing? Walking in the field? No. Their accusation was based upon that it was unlawful to work. That's what this is about. It has nothing to do with stealing. It has nothing to do with trespassing. You ought to hear the prosperity gospels people mess this. Oh, you ought to hear it. You ought to hear it, how the prosperity of the corn. Oh my goodness, it's so bad. I wish I could tell you how bad it is. But it's specifically the accusation is they're doing it and it's unlawful. Jesus immediately says, but he said unto them, have ye not read what David did? Now, Jesus doesn't say, hey, what's unlawful? Because he already knows what they're accusing. He already knows that this unlawfulness doesn't have to do with stealing, doesn't have to do with trespassing. He knows the Pharisees' legalistic teaching on the Sabbath day, and he knows exactly where they're pointing the arrow. He says, you're pointing the arrow that this is considered work on the Sabbath day. That's exactly what you're doing. But he says, have ye not read what David did? Now, 
If you think that's just a random statement, remember the Pharisees are the experts of the day. When he says, have you not read about David? He knows they've read about David because they're the religious experts. They know everything about David. This is a very subtle accusation. And it's a a subtle accusation and a reproof because he says, I know you've read this. But have you not read what David did? Now, we're going to learn about what David did when he was hungered and they that were with him. Now, we're going to stop there because I just want you to first of all see a couple more background things. Jesus immediately reproves the accusation because here's what was permitted. Okay, now this is carefully understand this. Here's what was permitted under Jewish law. It was perfectly lawful under Jewish law, that which was the law of the land, to walk along for travelers, for the poor, walking along fields of grain to help themselves to part of that crop that laid along the edges. There was no crime being committed. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 19 verse 9, God commanded his people not to harvest their field to the very edges, but to leave some grain for the poor and for travelers. Now let's just turn there just so we don't think I'm making this up. Leviticus 19, verse 9. This specific Jewish law, which they knew this law. Okay, So this is part of the reason why Jesus knows exactly what's happening here. Drop down to verse 9 of Leviticus 19. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Look at verse 10. And thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. So the whole idea that the Pharisees say that they were accusing them of breaking the law. Now we know there's no way that was the case. They were experts in the law. They knew what that law was. So now we're beginning to understand that these Pharisees do not have good intent. They're not trying to make people more spiritual. They're not trying to make the disciples truly understand. They're just trying to find an accusation against the disciples and even more specifically find an accusation against Jesus. This is ratcheting up the tension. And now the conflict begins to get deeper. So the very fact that Jesus' disciples plucked these heads of grain out of someone else's field was not considered a crime. The problem is, is that in the eyes of the Pharisees' tradition, they were guilty of doing it on the Sabbath day. So in their reason, in their rational mind, here's what they would say. If you're hungry on the Sabbath day, don't eat. That's the conclusion you have to come to. Don't eat. So eating is now a work which is a violation of the Sabbath day. Now, in order to get this grain, uh, there is this principle of actually plucking it and then uh, threshing it. And they said that process to get that grain, that's a work. Violation of Sabbath right there. Violation of Sabbath. Now, if we don't already see the ridiculousness of this, you're going to have a hard time following along from this point on. Because here, they're adding something that the Bible clearly says, this is what you can do. And it didn't say, don't do it on the Sabbath day. Yet it was considered that they were in violation. Now, in order to understand this, the word Sabbath 
comes from a word which means to cease from work. It also has the meaning of that it is a sense of rest and a sense of inactivity. Okay, so there is this picture of rest. No question about it. We see the first mention of this all the way back in Genesis 2 and in verses, 21, or verses 2 and 3, really, of the, the first of creation. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. This rest was not because God was tired. This is God sabbathing or entered into a state of rest. In other words, creation at that point ceased from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So the Sabbath day was not a law that was created. It was all the way back in the very beginning. So there's been years to understand what's happening here. Now we do see it as part of the law that was given. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, and we see that there is made mention of the Sabbath day. Again, keep in mind what the accusation is. Keep in mind of what's happening here. Exodus chapter 20, and let's drop down to verses 9 through 11. Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. Six days... Well, let's, actually, let's, let me go back a little bit. Let's, let's go uh, to verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do, not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Nobody who knows Bible is arguing with the Sabbath being set apart in this context. The problem is, is what the Pharisees are trying to define as work and the purposes of why they're saying what they're saying. Okay, they are not in this to try to raise up biblically astute people who would follow Christ. They are in it, in, in the very last verse we read, when Jesus does all this, they put a council together and say, now how do we destroy this man? There was no intent for religious growth in the Pharisees. Okay, now again, we move back to our text and you notice how Jesus reproved this. He didn't use the strong language that he uses in some. He doesn't call them vipers. He doesn't call them hypocrites here. He doesn't call them whitewashed sepulchers. All those very stinging words and expressions Jesus would use. But he does point them to the thing that they should know. And he says, have ye not read? So the very fact that Jesus' disciples plucked these heads of corn is they, were not, they had not done anything unlawful. Now remember, every aspect of the Old Testament law, we just came out of studying Hebrews for almost a one solid year. All those types, all those pictures, the temple, the tabernacle, all those things were meant to point us to Christ. They were meant to point us to Christ as the fulfillment of all of those things. That is still true when we read Matthew. Nothing is different here. 
Jesus is telling them that there's so much more to what you are implying here. It pointed men to Christ. All of Hebrews 4, if you remember this, you can turn there if you'd like. Hebrews 4, we covered this months ago. Uh, but again, it, it prepared us really to come back to Matthew. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 4, remember what the writer of Hebrews said to them about rest. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 10. He says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest of the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest. Now please notice that. He that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. This rest is the entering into the rest that's found in Christ. And when you enter into that rest, you cease from your own works. All of them. Every last one of them. Folks, there is no work that you can do. None. You are not gaining favor with God by a single act of a good work. Your acceptance is not being more confirmed before God because you do a good work. Like, I, like we mentioned this morning, you have committed so many sins, you don't even remember them all. If you had to do a one-for-one -one trade, if it were possible, you'd never cover them because you can't remember all the sin. There's too many of them. The problem comes in when we say, well, there's probably not as many as you think. No, there's probably more. You see, this concept, this principle, the Pharisees were not concerned at all about Christ being the rest. All they were concerned about was finding an accusation. And Jesus immediately reproves this. Now also remember, and rightfully so, uh, nobody is negating the importance of the commandments of the Sabbath. So please understand, we're not going to get to the full conclusion of everything today. So you're going to leave here today with some things kind of left there. It's not that I'm ignoring them. We're just not going to get there. But notice that the Sabbath, of course, was very important to the Jew. There's no question about it. It had been commanded by God to observe the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. We just read that. As a matter of fact, you can read through and you can find historical accounts of this that the Jews took Sabbath keeping so seriously that they were willing to die and have their children die rather than violate the Sabbath. There's history that will say and will tell you that there were conflicts, battles, wars they refused to fight in because the war was taking place on a Sabbath day. 
Nobody's negating the importance of it. But their purposes, the Pharisees' purpose of this, was far from holy and reverent. So despite the reality, and again, you, can, you should study this out for yourself, despite the emphasis on the Sabbath, a thorough study of the Old Testament will show you very, very few, relatively, few regulations on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. We think that the Bible, the Old Testament, is just full of thou shalt nots on the Sabbath day. If you do an honest study of you're going to find, you're not going to find a whole lot of specifics about thou shalt not do this. You're going to find the principle. You're going to find that there's the teaching, but you're not going to find a lot of what's been made up to say, if you do this, you're violating the Sabbath. That's what's happening here. So the Jewish authorities, okay, and the Pharisees established all sorts of regulations that were not based on Old Testament law, not based upon Old Testament scripture, but were based upon man-made traditions. Every man-made tradition, if it's not scripturally based, is going to impose a burden on you, and it's going to put you back in bondage, and it's going to put you in a form of slavery. Now again, tradition in and of itself is not the problem. This, this little church here, we have traditions and things that we do and how we do things that if someone in another Reformed Baptist church doesn't do it exactly the way that we do it, I'm not going to look at them and say, well, you're wrong, heretic. Some of this is tradition. How we order our service is not necessarily the only way you can do it. Now, we do it for a reason that there are certain elements we believe are important, important, the preaching and the reading of the word and praying. We think services should be simple. They should be focused on, the, on God and not on man. But I'm not going to look at another group that says, look, we only sing two hymns and then the preaching starts. Praise God for that. But the Pharisees, their man-made traditions were not based upon scriptural principles. They were based upon with an intent to control. Man-made rules are what the disciples were being accused of when they so, so-called violated when they picked the heads of grain. The Pharisees considered this a violation of Sabbath because their laws, again, their laws required the Jews to refrain from all unnecessary work. That's what the law said. Now the Pharisees believed that it was work because picking the grain amounted to sowing and reaping. That's the whole context. It would be like us going into a cornfield and they were hungry and we pull it out and we, we shuck that corn. That would have been a violation according to the Pharisees. And you would have been a Sabbath breaker if you do that. Okay, that's what's happening here. They rebuked Jesus. Again, notice they rebuked Jesus. Behold thy disciples, or your translation probably says your disciples. This accusation is not pulling the disciples aside and saying, hey, you guys know you're doing wrong. This is an accusation right at the feet of Jesus. As if they know better than he does. The Pharisees never knew more than what Jesus knew. The Pharisees never debated Jesus and won. Jesus was always right. And again, that's what's happening here, and he's going to reprove them. So he reproves them, and he does this by giving them two principles from the law. Okay, so your first heading you have is Christ reproves, reproves the accusation of Pharisees, 
and that ranges into the first, the first part of verse 3, and then the second part of verse 3 into verse 5 shows us the two principles that Christ gave, and it's interesting that he gives two principles or precepts directly from the law. So he goes right back to what, they're, what they are living by, or so to speak, living by, and he proves to them how they're not living it out properly. Look at, look at the end of, verse, uh, end of verse 3. It said about David what he did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. So Jesus answers the accusation. He reproves it by giving two events or precedents, we might say, from Scripture. He's really asking, have you not read what the scriptures say about this? When he says, you know what David did? This event when David ate the showbread was an actual event. And Jesus is referring to an actual event in David's life when David was on the run. David was on the run from many. He was on the run from King Saul. He was on the run from his own son Absalom. But he's speaking of the time when he was running from Saul. Now, what had happened? Why was he on the run? Well, he was on the run because Samuel, you recall, had anointed David to be the next king. Saul was the people's choice, remember? Give us this man. If we want a king, here's what we want him to look like. God said, okay, it's what you want, you got him. Saul was a wicked king. And yet here comes Samuel. He's looking over all the the children and looking at all the men and he anoints David as going to be the one. From that point on, David is continually on the run from Saul. Samuel anoints him to become second, the second king. Jonathan, King Saul's son, becomes his greatest source of warning. And he warns him that my father wants to kill you. That's the background. Now, the story is actually found in 1 Samuel 21. So if you go to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, let's look at part of this. As I mentioned to you, we're going to have to take quite a journey to get where we need to get to. So 1 Samuel 21. Again, and I do, I do want to read a portion of this because I want us to see specifically what the Bible says and what this event was. So in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, here's what it says. Then came David to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Now please remember that. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business. And hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young man have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common. Yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread. 
that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now, there's an important little piece of information here. The showbread that was put out, at a certain point, the showbread had to be replaced. The older bread was removed from the ritual service and fresh bread was put into it. Once the old bread that was used for ritual was taken out, the priests who had served in the tabernacle or the temple were allowed to take that bread, and they were allowed to partake of that. When David gets there, there's nothing but show bread. So it's actually the bread that's being used at that moment at that time. Does that make sense to everybody? It's the bread that's in use. Now, it would have been completely lawful if that had been given to the priest and it was no longer being used. The important little tidbit of this is the fact that when David went and the showbread was given, it was actually the showbread that was still being hallowed, still being used. Now you're going to start seeing the connections here. And the priest, who is the authority of where that showbread goes, how that showbread is used, when it is used, Ahimelech gives permission to David to take of the hallowed bread and eat it and to eat it out of necessity. Okay, that's, that's what's at the heart of what's happening here. So the priest gives him the hallowed bread. And then verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand a spear or a sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Now notice the priest notices that this is actually David. Now if you were following the narrative, David was pretending to be someone he wasn't. <laughs> the priest Ahimelech said, the sword of Goliath is here, who you slew. It's a pretty interesting little tidbit. If you just go rolling through your scriptures and don't stop and really look at details, you miss an awful lot. He knows this is David, even though David says, I'm here on, my, I'm here on the king's business. No, he says, he, you slew him. And the priest Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. Okay, so now we see what's, we see what's happening. This is the event that Jesus is referring to. The day that Ahimelech the priest gave David the showbread. Now, strictly speaking, did truly according to the law, did a supposed violation take place? Yes, because the showbread was only supposed to be used after it was no longer being used for the ritual. But what Jesus is saying, and we're going to see this point, is he is saying that there are times when a work of necessity supersedes the ritual. See, people that are very very, very divisive on the Sabbath are very unyielding. And they're unyielding to the point where they say it's nothing but must and there's no exception. Period. No exception. If you're starving, you don't eat. It's, it, is, it is a line that is as strong as a wall and there's no getting around it. What Jesus is actually beginning to teach them is what's called about works of mercy and works of necessity. 
David had need of bread. Ahimelech, the priest, who was the one who determined what happened with that showbread, gave it to David. And Jesus is using that now as an example as to what his disciples did and proving to them again what actually is taking place. So we go back to our text, and you notice now that as David, uh, David is used as this illustration, here's what we do know about it. Again, when man gets involved in this, man has a lot of different opinions, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, there are some, and if I gave you their names, okay, you would say, I would trust their preaching, and I would tell you you should still trust their preaching. But I told you there's division on lots of things. There are some commentators who argue that Ahimelech only allowed David to take the bread because it was within his authority or right to exercise mercy to anyone who's hungry. So there are some commentators that say that priest had, he could do whatever he wanted. If it was a work of necessity, he could say, you can take the showbread. But there are others who say that the only reason that Ahimelech gave the bread was because he knew it was David and that David was the king and that he somehow felt obligated to give the bread as if I don't have a choice. David's asking for it, I've got to give it to him. So out of respect for the king, then I've got to respect his office. What Jesus is telling us though, is regardless of which position you take on that, Ahimelech gave him the bread. He gave him the bread, and it allows Jesus now to make a very telling argument, a rebuttal, a reprove, reproof of what they're saying. And again, I hope you see this. Ahimelech was not just some nobody. Ahimelech, even the Pharisees would have acknowledged, that's one of our religious leaders, that's a high priest. Jesus is using, it's much like when Jesus would call out on Moses or he would call out an illustration or he would call David. He's using this because these are men that those Pharisees, even with their warped beliefs, these were their quote-unquote spiritual leaders. Abraham, the Pharisees, absolutely loved, which is perplexing because everything Abraham was saying flew in the face of what they were actually trying to teach. But you have this acknowledgement that Jesus himself is asking them, you know what happened here. Ahimelech, one of the great religious leaders of Israel, you're saying that he permitted a violation on the Sabbath day then. That's your argument. Because he gave David bread that was hallowed bread. Secondly, Jesus not only is showing them about this, but he's also telling the Pharisees a very important point I think we need to see is that mercy, please remember this, mercy is more important than ritual. Now, ritual does matter. What God has commanded, it matters. Jesus is going to use a term in a minute when he's actually going to say about the sacrifice. He is not saying that the sacrifice doesn't matter. He's not saying that it's, it's mercy and it's no sacrifice. No, he's just saying there are times when mercy is to be exhibited over ritual. The Pharisees were not about works of mercy. The Pharisees were all about ritual and law-keeping and bondage. Not about mercy. If you wanted mercy, you didn't go to a Pharisee because they're going to show you no mercy. 
Now, the, the thing is, is Jesus would often say this about them. You want mercy and you show mercy to no one, right? You want mercy, but you don't show any mercy. Strain at a gnat, right? Folks, there's something about mercy that we need to really keep in mind. And notice he tells them that they fully don't get it. Verse 5, Or have ye not read the law, how that on the Sabbath days the priest and the temple, now notice these are Jesus' words, profane the Sabbath and are blameless. Jesus is very specific in the wording that's being chosen. Again, you may have a different translation. It may use a different term. But the profane word here is not like profanity when we speak curse words. What is to profane the Sabbath day? To work. You know what he's saying? The priests profane the Sabbath day every day because they work. The priests don't take the Sabbath day off. And he says, but yet what are they? They're blameless. In other words, he's not saying they're okay. All your priests are guilty of violating the Sabbath because they work on the Sabbath day. He says, no, they're guiltless. They're not found guilty of that, of that crime, so to speak. And then he really stings them with these next two verses. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. We're coming back there. But if ye had known what this means... I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He would not have condemned the guiltless. He basically puts it right there in front of me. He says, you don't have any idea what this is about. You don't know what this means. He asked them, have you not read? Have you not heard about the law? Have you not heard about the showbread that was given to David? Have you not heard about the, the, the priest who basically profaned the Sabbath every day, yet they're found blameless? But he makes a statement about himself. And that's our third heading. Christ is the one that's greater than the temple. Okay? Now, when he's talking about greater than the temple, he's not just talking about the building. He's talking about everything the building represents. You know, we're, we're tempted to, again, even in our day and age, we're, we're tempted to call a building like this the church. This building is not the church. It's not even truly, and I'm not, it's like talking about straining it and that. It's not truly appropriate to say I'm going down to the church unless you all are here. This is just a building. It would actually be better to call this a meeting place or a meeting house, but maybe a chapel. But a church is where people are. It's where, it's where believers are gathered together. That's why if this building catches on fire, we still can meet as a church. The church doesn't end because the building is destroyed. Now, to the Jewish mind, Jesus is running right upon that line of what they would consider blasphemous because the temple, in the Jewish mind, the temple was everything. Absolutely everything. The building, everything in it. But the problem is they didn't realize that everything in it was not about itself. It was to point them to Christ. That's what they didn't want to see. Jesus makes this statement that causes the escalation, the conflict to increase. By giving the examples of David and the priests, he now sets this up to go from something that's lesser to the greater. In other words, Jesus could have started out by saying, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. But he actually does it progressively. 
He starts with those things which are considered the least, and he goes up to the highest, which is the greatest, which is himself. You know, oftentimes when someone wants to debate with you, they always start with the greatest argument. They start with the, they, they, they start with the thing that's going to zing you. Jesus is basically going back and he's using, this is what you should know. And because you don't know the first steps, here's what I guarantee you don't know, that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And folks, if you don't know Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, and I say this with as much respect as I can say, you don't know anything. So today, if you think that somehow these Pharisees were right, that these Pharisees were somehow winning part of this argument, you don't know Christ is the Sabbath. All you know is legalism and all you know is ritual and all you know is, and you still think that your works are doing something. They're not doing a thing. And you probably don't know what mercy is and you probably don't know what works of necessity are. You don't understand what Jesus is saying. And again, he keeps building to this. To grasp the very depth of what he's saying, you have to understand how important the temple was to the Jewish mind. Again, what did the temple and the tabernacle represent? It was a part of representation of the presence of God. The presence of the ark there was the presence of God. That temple, again, it's hard to not jump ahead. But when Jesus says, this temple is going to be destroyed, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. That's why it was so stinging to them because he said, this man's talking about tearing down our building. And then he says, I'm not talking about your building. I'm talking about the temple of my body. Folks, that's two different things. They're not even in the same realm. All the Jewish mind knew is he wants to tear down the temple. This building that means everything. But yet, they should have known this. Jesus says, there's one. Don't miss that. In this place is one. Now your translation, my translation actually has that in italics, which means the translators added the word one to give us better clarity. You read it without it, that in this place is greater than the temple. It doesn't change the meaning. Jesus is still identifying the same thing. He says, I'm greater than the temple. Now, if you think that's not an insult to the Jewish Pharisee mind, you don't know what an insult is. Because now he has basically just undone everything about them. And he said, even your temple, I'm much greater than the temple. Your temple is just a building. And think about all the hallowed things that even in the Old Testament, the Bible says, here's how you should make the temple. And Jesus says, I'm greater than all those things that are in that temple. Again, if we didn't believe that the Old Testament were shadows and pictures leading us to this, we would say, Jesus, is, is he right? Is he wrong? Jesus was always right. He's always right. Everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple, all the symbolism, all the shadows, all the pictures, all the types, they were carefully patterned. You would call in the Old Testament, Moses was given the pattern of the tabernacle, even down to the colors of the curtains, down to what the, what the rings need to be made out of. Everything had to be this and patterned perfectly. Yet now Jesus is saying, I am actually the temple. In John 2.21 
This is what Jesus actually says. And again, these are stinging accusations against what he's saying. And this is that event I just told you about. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. And it's interesting that it says then, then when, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said about this. If anyone should have known, it should have been the Pharisees, but yet they did not know him. Jesus declares he was greater than the temple. He was greater than the priest who served even on the Sabbath day. And in a sense, Jesus is even saying that the work that his disciples do what they would be doing is greater than the service that those priests were doing. Jesus was declaring, again, just like he did with others, I'm greater than David. I'm greater than Abraham. I'm greater than Moses. Jesus sounds arrogant to me. This isn't arrogance. He will not share his glory with any. He's not going to share his glory. Jesus is not going to put himself on the level with the priests and say, you know what, I and the high priest, we're on evil, we're on even playing field here. There is no even playing field with a human priest because they're sinful. Folks, even if you could keep every Sabbath institution and regulation that was there, you'd still be sinful. And you could be a Sabbath keeper to the very end, but if you don't know Christ as your Sabbath, it is of no value at all. Christ is the rest. Again, we're not going to get all through this today. But I want you to have that in your mind when we come back again next week. If it was acceptable for David to eat the showbread from the sanctuary, it was certainly acceptable for Jesus' disciples to eat a few bits of grain on the Sabbath. Jesus goes back to that old saying, if you had known what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have condemned the guiltless. Now that verse is a direct quote from Hosea 6.6 where God's not saying that the sacrificial system doesn't matter. He's not saying it didn't have any purpose. But He is saying there is a hierarchy of value. There are things that there are times when yes, I want sacrifice. I want these things. But understand that sacrifices are part of your part of your obligations, of course, but mercy is much more important than ritual. Folks, I've seen some very hateful things done in the name of being a quote-unquote Sabbath breaker. And I'm telling you, my experience has not been that when people take this hard line like that, not every case, I'm not going to paint it that broad, but there's no mercy in it at all. No mercy. Jesus is clearly teaching there's mercy in this. And he's not violating his own word. He's not violating his own law. And if Jesus says, this is, I'm greater than these things, who are we to argue with him? Jesus was saying that the Pharisees, we're going to end with this, was saying that the Pharisees had taken the Sabbath, which we've already read this morning, which was supposed to be a gift that God had given to his people for rest and refreshment and for joy. And they've taken something that God meant for good and they've turned it into something burdensome. And most of all, 
if not all of it, was based upon their man-made traditions. In a sense, what they had done is what they were often guilty of. They had condemned the guiltless. They weren't guilty of violating it. They weren't guilty of breaking the Sabbath. But yet the Pharisees determined, you are guilty of this. Next week, we're going to pick up again. We'll start again in verse 8. We've already kind of talked about it. And we'll go through, down through what Jesus does next. He gives an illustration. Another thing dear to them. If one of your ox or your sheep fall into a pit, fall into a ditch, do you not go get it out? And then he's going to turn around and he's going to heal a man with a withered hand. And he's going to go one step beyond that. He's not only going to heal a man with a withered hand, but a group of people are going to follow him on the Sabbath day. And it says he healed them all. Proving yet again that if this was a violation, then Jesus himself would not be doing it. And he was doing these works of necessity on the Sabbath day. So we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I understand today that in the context of what we've been dealing with this morning, where we've not driven home the gospel clearly, but Lord, we have dealt with the reality of sin and we've dealt with the reality of what we believe our works, our work, are worth. But Lord, the desire today is, of course, that those who are yet outside of the body of Christ, they have not repented of their sins and they've not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Our great burden and our great prayer today is that according to your purposes and plans, that they would be gloriously converted. Father, we realize from your word that salvation is not partly what man can do and then God meets us in the middle. We know salvation is a work entirely of the Lord. We cannot make a man or a woman saved. We cannot do it for them. But Lord, if it be your will today that someone here or someone who's, who's listening, maybe even listening later, that the Spirit of God would open their heart and open their eyes and their ears to the truth and that they would gloriously be converted. Father, again, may we study ourselves May we not allow things that are said to us just to simply be taken, but that, Lord, we would go and study the Word of God for ourselves. And may this be the case today. Father, thank you for your love towards us, and thank you for the lessons and the, 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 the events that we see even in this Gospel of Matthew. Guide our studies and guide our hearts in the days to come. And it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's stand.